going to take a break from our series to the Ten Commandments to look at Psalm 16 together this morning. So if you'd turn with me there in your copies of God's Word. And we, we won't be looking at it in, uh, again in detail, but uh, I do intend for Acts chapter 2 that we read earlier to be um, uh, a passage that we're considering a partner passage with this as well. You might um, keep something in that page and, and refer to it. Uh, Peter's short exposition of this psalm as well. So Psalm 16, read the whole psalm, hear God's holy infallible word this morning. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And our reading of God's word there. I don't remember from my uh, college graduation who the speaker was or what was said at all. Uh, I remember, though, um, Carly's graduation speaker, the, the next year, she's older, uh, if you didn't know. Um, the speaker was a guy named Walt Mueller, um, and he walked to the podium and began, You're all going to die. That was his introduction. He was encouraging with that uh, us with that somewhat arresting and, and maybe somewhat humorous because of it um, statement uh, to wrestle with that fact head on uh, as we considered how we would live. And I think there are some ways, some reasons that uh, modern people need this sort of arresting confrontation, uh, maybe more than in times past. I've, I've read a couple of reviews of a book called The Slavery of Death. It's by a professor at at Abilene University, Christian University. And it describes how the Industrial Revolution removed the constant imminence of death from people's ordinary experience, as it had been through all of human history, uh, several layers away. Um, Whether in buying meat now at the supermarket that's already been butchered and processed and so on, or the the popularity of, of funeral homes and the prevalence of, of specialized hospice care. and uh, Nothing wrong with any of these things, but they have in many ways sort of outsourced the contact with and, and the, the dealing with, with death that would have been part of most of humanity's experience in history. And, and the book goes on to argue that this has actually heightened our fear of death, our, our inability to cope with it. Uh, as, as societies and 
Um, and then uh, the book argues as well, and I'm not sure exactly what I, I make of this, but it argues that all of our fears and anxieties in life are, are so, in some way connected to uh, ultimately our fear of death, the, the ultimate thing that we cannot control uh, that, that gives us uh, fear and anxiety. That, and that might explain growing prevalence of, of anxieties and, and inabilities uh, to cope. And whether that's exactly the right argument or not, uh, death is our, our greatest enemy. Uh, biblically, it's, it's the last enemy, uh, Paul says. Uh, something we all face, maybe all wrestle with the fear, the, the great grief at least of it in some way uh, in, in life. Uh, Stonewall Jackson famously, when he was asked why when bullets were flying everywhere in battle and death was always an inch away and happening all around him, uh, why he showed no fear. Uh, his biographer says that he responded, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. And Captain, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. It's a good reminder that, that Christians, those who are united to Christ, we face and understand death differently than those who don't know Christ. Um, not only because of his sovereignty, which is really what Stonewall Jackson is referring to, but because of the resurrection. Right? Fundamentally, if, if death is foundational in some sense to all of our fears, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is foundation, foundational to all of our hope. And Psalm 16 is a great example of this as well. The psalm opens, preserve me. There's a, there's a cry for the preservation of his life. The end of the psalm has to do with shale and, and the grave. And yet the psalm is a great statement of uh, confidence and joy in the face of death. Uh, and so I want to walk through this psalm with you today. Uh, a psalm that um, uh, concerns the resurrection uh, on a day that is... Uh, resurrection day every day of the week of the year by God's appointment, but a day uh, of the year when, when much of the world, uh, Christians around the world especially, focus on the resurrection of Christ and its meaning. Uh, Psalm 16 is about more than resurrection. We'll hopefully draw a number of lessons from it as we go through it this morning, but the climax is a hope in the resurrection of Jesus, as, as Peter makes clear. Uh, in Acts 2 as well. But before we look at this psalm together, just a word briefly about how we ought to understand, how we ought to approach uh, this psalm, uh, a psalm like this. Uh, Paul quotes Psalm 16, and Peter, again, at length, uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, quotes from Psalm 16. And they quote it particularly as prophetic of Jesus and his resurrection. Uh, David was writing about himself, surely, in, in some circumstance in his life, um, but ultimately, he was writing about Jesus. Peter, there in Acts 2, as we read earlier, said that David was consciously looking forward and hoping in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and it's not that David knew all the details about Jesus, who he would be, or exactly how or when, and all of those things. Uh, Peter, in Second Peter, writes about all the prophets prophesying about Jesus, but then longing to know exactly what, what would be the details and when and who would this be. Um, but, but David himself expresses consciousness that he was uh, writing prophecy uh, for the Lord. Among his last words is Psalm Samuel, or 2 Samuel uh, 23. He says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. 
his word is on my tongue. And certainly he's uh, thinking of his, his speaking, his writing was mainly in the Psalms. So we need to approach Psalm 16 not as merely the thoughts of David, but as the thoughts of Christ. Uh, that's how the New Testament would have us understand the Psalms, and a psalm like this particularly. The psalmist was facing death, but he's confident that God will not abandon him even in death. There are parallels to Psalm 22, which the New Testament also uh, points many times uh, to Christ as, as clearly being about Christ, his thoughts on the cross and his suffering, but also anticipating his resurrection. Uh, and here in Psalm 16, uh, it's anticipating Jesus facing death, but confident in the Father. Uh, most of this psalm is confessions and expressions of faith in God that then uh, results in this confidence in the face of death. Uh, but I want you to see the whole psalm properly as an expression of the faith of Jesus, not just a prophecy that in, in this verse or that verse uh, has some reference to Jesus, but a, but a statement of the faith uh, of the Christ uh, in his time on earth. And understand that the comfort and the hope that we derive from a psalm like this is therefore not that, that someone lived a long time ago and they wrote a song, and, and they faced hard things, and they had faith, and we face hard things, and so we can identify with them and have the same sort of feelings. That's not how inspired psalms work, especially the word of Christ. Rather, the powerful encouragement of the hope of this psalm is the fact that it is the experience and the faith of Jesus, that he actually faced death and died uh, in our place, uh, and then rose again so that we can sing this psalm and identify with him uh, in his words. So let's look first uh, briefly at, at three aspects, um, at looking at number one in your outline there, three aspects of this great faith of David and, and Jesus woven together uh, in this psalm. Uh, the first aspect is, is this faith in placing God at his right hand. Uh, he puts his full trust in God, that the psalm is essentially saying you are my Lord, I, I submit to your will, to your leading, your protection. If, if I'm going to be safe, it, it will be by, by your grace and your power and your faithfulness. Because my, my whole investment is with you. All of my eggs are in your basket, uh, in a sense. The psalm begins, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Uh, look also at verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Um, in other words, what, what I get in life and after life, it's, it's by your hand, it's by your control, it's at your discretion and your discretion. And, and we'll see that David's not just resigning himself to that fact, he's, he's celebrating it in this psalm. But look especially at verse 8 under this point, uh, where David says, I have set the Lord continually before me first. Uh, when I need to remember something, which is often, I things fall out of my mind really easily, I I set alarms on my phone for myself all the time, every day. I write on the back of my hand. Uh, when I'm studying here in the office, I'll put things in front of the door, so I'll trip over them and remember to do something with it. I put things in my way. And here David is saying, this is his resolve to keep the Lord in his way, to keep him before himself all the time, constantly mindful of his presence, his authority, his counsel, his protection. And that, that verse goes on. Uh, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does it mean? David, David says he's put the Lord at his right hand. 
It's a place of honor in his life. Um, the left hand, conversely, in the ancient world, is symbolic of dishonor. You see that the ancient Latin is uh, for left is uh, left hand is sinestra, which has become our, our English word sinister. Uh, clearly, it's biblical to be right-handed. Right? No, that's not true. That was that was for Jeff and Carly and maybe others. Um, later in the Psalm, uh, David will say, "At your right hand." Our pleasures that God has put David at his right hand but here David says he puts the Lord at his right hand at the place of honor in his own life and uh, is that not what we see in the life of Jesus as well uh, as I've preached through a few of the gospels now and, and have I've, I've increasingly recognized the benefit of, of reading through the life of Jesus and at the same time, singing through the Psalms and hearing Jesus there as well and hearing, hearing in parallel his, his heart and his faith um, in the Father in, in suffering and joy and confidence in the Psalms. And it's, it's true of the whole Bible, but in a unique and maybe underappreciated way that the Psalms and the Gospels uh, explain each other and illustrate each other. So how, how does Jesus in his humanity especially continually set his Father before him at his right hand? We see that in his time on earth, his, his prayer life, his remarkable prayer life, praying so often, praying through the entire night, often it seems, depending on the Spirit, depending on his Father. Um, we see it in the content of his prayers, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, this is what's on his mind when, when he's challenged, uh, particularly in the Gospel of John, about what, what he's doing and why he's doing it or why he's saying this. Jesus says, uh, I'm doing my Father's will. This is what's on his mind. He's, he's at his right hand in that sense. We see further the faith of the psalmist in this psalm, letter B, uh, in treasuring God. In treasuring God and, and what God gives above anything else. Uh, a couple ways this is expressed. It's maybe best summarized in verse 2, the second half of verse 2. David says, I have no good besides you. No good besides you. In other, in other words, Lord, you are my good. There's, there's nothing in life or in my future that is good that's, that's not directly tied to who you are as God, as my God. Uh, without you, there's nothing good. This isn't, it's not that David is saying he has nothing good in his life, things to be thankful for and to enjoy, but he's making an ultimate statement. He's saying God is not just a good among many goods. He's not just a helper. He's not just a source of good. And it's easy to treat God that, that way. He's a good, he's a source of good, rather than he is ultimately the good. You, you are my good. I have nothing good apart from you. Uh, a couple other ways this is expressed here in verses 5 and 6. Again, David speaks about God as his portion, his lot, his inheritance. He, he uses this language to describe what, what is his ultimate benefit from the Lord. What is the lasting benefit from his relationship to God? Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Uh, part of what he's saying there is, Lord, you are ultimately what I get. You are my inheritance. He, he's speaking of the Lord multiple times here. Not, not in terms of things he gets from the Lord. And that's appropriate, but, and elsewhere, David speaks of benefits and blessings and gives thanks for those. But here, in this language, it's, Lord, it, it's ultimately you. You are what I get. You are my inheritance. 
He also expresses his, his treasuring God uh, in his love for God's people. Verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. They, they're the people I delight in. Uh, he especially values and honors those who God loves and honors in this world. He loves the people of God. Um, you probably know how, how hard that can be at times. Uh, I, I trust we all affirm, would affirm our love for the people of God, for, for our congregation and so on. But at times we find each other to be quirky and even difficult and maybe annoying, disappointing, hard to love, hard to enjoy. You know, the, the world has its majestic ones in David's language, people it celebrates and loves to delight in. Think of celebrities especially. Uh, but a, a sign of God's grace at work in someone of, of love for God is love for them, those whom God loves. Right? Those, that, that person you might struggle, that fellow believer you might struggle to love uh, or enjoy, you need to remember that as Jesus through David here says, he, de- he delights in him. He delights in her. Verse 4 gives something of a contrast to this, a contrast to delighting in God and treasuring God alone. Um, and ex- it's expressed here in terms of rejecting uh, inheritance, satisfaction, pleasure, and anything else uh, other, uh, outside of God. Uh, beyond what God gives. Uh, verse 4, the, air, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. Uh, in the ancient world, everyone identified with, with some God or gods, family gods or tribal gods or otherwise. There really were no secularists. That's not so much like our experience in our society, but even in a secular context, it's no less applicable. The basic principle here is that everyone has attached their purpose, their goal, their, their value in life to something. And if it's not ultimately to the Lord, the one true God, their allegiance, their purpose in life is attached to a lie. Right? A, a selfish, idolatrous lie ultimately that, that rejects the truth of God. It rejects true satisfaction and salvation. Um, David is rejecting all other options in this verse. He's saying there, there's nothing for me in that, in, in phantom gods, in, in other pleasures. Um, and, and the verse says that those disappointments will only increase. The verse goes on, verse 4, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. I can remember growing up for many years singing this psalm, especially in the previous Psalter, the red Psalter, those of you who know that one. Um, this is one of the lines in there that I never understood. It, it, it went, uh, I, will not, I shall not pour out their libations of blood. Never knew what a libation of blood was. But it's simply a reference to, to pagan worship, to false sacrifice and worship. God, God was the one who invented sacrifice, blood sacrifice, as an illustration of giving his son uh, in our place. Uh, but there are many, have been many uh, false imitations of that. Uh, pagan attempts to get what they wanted out of various gods, so uh, crops or fertility or rain or all sorts of things, and uh, David is rejecting all of those things. He's saying, I'm, I'm not going to chase after anything, meaning or needs or anything, the way that the world does. And, and we as Christians confess essentially the same thing. I, I will not look for good, uh, what is good or true or beautiful or meaningful anywhere besides in you, Lord. I, I won't chase those things in the way that the world does. 
Uh, my only hope for, for goodness, for satisfaction, is, is in you. Uh, so it's, it's a profoundly necessary and powerful confession, uh, really, of loyalty to God, uh, is verse 4, and, and is the whole psalm. Uh, I've, I've realized in this area of the country, in this region, we, we don't have the intensity of loyalty to and rivalry between colleges and, and college sports, especially football, that, that exists in the South. Um, I was talking a while back to a friend from Alabama, and he and his fan, family are uh, diehard Auburn fans, um, and he was talking about he, he has some friends somehow for, who are Alabama fans, uh, University of Alabama, and um, those, and then we're talking about football here primarily. Um, those of you who know what I'm talking about, you, you know it's not just a matter of who you cheer for, what color you wear, it's, it's really more of an identity, right, and, and generational often. And, and my friend was describing some families who have become split over these allegiances, uh, Alabama, Auburn, um, you know, parents whose kids grew up and, and chased after other gods or other mascots, right? Um, and while we can laugh about that, argue about the various merits of, of you know, identifying with one school or another, um, in, in, in one sense, David, what he's saying in this psalm is none of that kind of a debate over allegiances uh, makes any sense with regard to the true God and any other options that are out there. Um, it, it's a matter of life and death. David is saying there, there is nothing for me apart from allegiance to the true God. David, David treasures God and what God provides alone. And that reflects, again, the faith of Jesus in treasuring what, what the Father had promised to him. Uh, what, what, what consumed Jesus, the scriptures say. Um, zeal for my Father's house consumes me. That's what Psalm 69 applied to Jesus in, in the New Testament. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Uh, treasuring the joy, the promises that God had put before him, the Father had put before him. And, and he taught his disciples things like lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Uh, don't, don't worry yourself uh, with all of these other things if your treasure is in heaven. And the third category or aspect of this faith in this psalm is in God as his counselor. Uh, look at verse 7 especially here. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. God is the one who teaches me. God is the one who guides me. Uh, and the, the rest of the verse seems to be a result of that. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. That, that is what I, what I learn from God is then what, what comes to mind, comes out of my mind and my heart in talking to myself. I've, I've posed this, what I think is a helpful question of self-reflection to you before, I think, uh, which is who is the person in your life who you listen to the most? <clears throat> And the answer is the same for all of us. It's you. Right? It's yourself. Uh, your, your self-talk and your thoughts, this is just how it works, is by far uh, what, what gives you the most direction. Uh, it, how crucial then is taking care of who is instructing you, who is, who is informing your mind and your heart. And David is saying, the Lord is my counselor, and then when I'm lying on my bed at night, it's it's him that I hear through my mind, through my heart. And this is uh, perhaps more worthy of reflection now than any time previously in history. We're, we're in what we call the information age, the smartphone age, the uh, 
age of 24-hour news cycle and, and cable TV, countless unprecedented inputs of information and options and sources for influence on our minds. Uh, and so, once again, this, uh, verse 7 is a, a crucial confession for us to make in, in the midst of this psalm. And it's, it's a line we could easily read over, sing over, um, uh, without much thought, but it's a crucial confession for the believer. You, Lord, are the one who counsels and shapes my mind. Again, we see this in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, from a young age, his, his eagerness to learn about his father. I would, I would argue to learn about himself in the scriptures. Uh, we have that incident from his childhood where he stayed behind in the temple. Uh, did you not know, he said to his parents, that I had to be in my, in my father's house? Uh, we see it in his reliance on the Holy Spirit and, and his leading throughout his life. Well, it's out of these truths and professions and, and resolutions that the confident conclusion comes. So look at number two on your outline. And look at verses 9 and 10, particularly first. David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Uh, my flesh. He, he expresses a confidence physically. It's not just a spiritual expression. He's saying something about his body here as well. And, and before we look at the two great expectations that come out of this, uh, just, just think about a summary of the, the point of the psalm at this point. I would say the point of the psalm is the one who has the faith of verses 1 through 8, what we've looked at so far, uh, can have the absolute joy and confidence and expectation of being taken safely through this life into the next, which is how the psalm Ends. And that, that, that can be true of you as well. If, if you have the faith that we've seen so far, you, you set the Lord at your right hand, at a place of honor in your life and priority in your life. Uh, you make the Lord your treasure, not, not one good thing among many good things, but the Lord is your good and, and the Lord is your counselor. He's the shaper of your mind and your heart. He determines what is, what is true and real. If that's, if that's your faith, then you can have the joy and the peace of this psalm. It doesn't mean ease or smiles and happiness all the time. Uh, the context of the psalm, again, is, seems to be David facing death. Uh, Jesus didn't have ease and comfort and, and worldly happiness, but he did have this settled confidence uh, and joy uh, in the Father. Uh, so two aspects of that confidence, that expectation that David writes about here. The first is an expectation of resurrection. Uh, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Sheol is, is the grave. It's, it's death. Uh, David expected to die, it seemed, but not to be abandoned to the power of death forever. He even had hope of his body not decaying. Again, multiple points in this psalm where he speaks of his body as flesh, living on, not decaying. And here's where Peter, uh, Peter quotes this part of the psalm, the end of the psalm in Acts chapter 2, and points out that it, this can't have been David just speaking about himself and, and the hope that he had in and of himself. Um, if it was, Peter says, he was wrong. He said, I assure you, David is dead. He died a long time ago. Uh, he, is, he is dust. Uh, Peter says he was anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. He knew he would die, but that his body would not rot forever. He would, as he puts it in Psalm 23, he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
He anticipates in in verse 11 here, uh, enjoying pleasures of God forever. So David's hope is wrapped up in what he prophesied of Jesus. And clearly, importantly, again, that hope is not just spiritual. uh, It's physical as well. It's for his body, for his flesh. That, That God would allow his body to raise and to live one day is, is clearly implied. It's only because Jesus faced death in David's place, in your place, and conquered death, having paid the, the penalty, the guilt of your sin, raising from the dead, that you can have hope of raising from the dead. And in fact, it's an absolute hope, because if you're united to faith by, uh, united to Jesus by faith, that not only is his death yours, death to sin, but his resurrection is yours. Uh, it belongs to you. Uh, his resurrection, Paul says, was the first fruits. We're going to see first fruits uh, soon here in, in spring. Well, that's first leaves coming on the tree that promise the rest to come on, or, or actual fruit. Uh, in a real sense, uh, even though your body will die if, if the Lord doesn't come first, your resurrection is sure your resurrection has already begun in a real sense, in the language of the New Testament. Um, Christ's resurrection guarantees yours. And the New Testament makes that point over and over again. 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the, uh, the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Thessalonians 4, which the men's group will be studying this week. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is the foundation of all of our hope. Uh, Understand, as Paul says, he argues in in 1 Corinthians 15, if if you don't have the certain hope of verse 10, and ultimately understanding that Jesus bodily raised from the dead, then the rest of our life, the rest of our religion, uh, is is worthless. It's meaningless. It's, It's really just something to make you feel good until you die. Uh, What does it matter? If Jesus was not raised, if, if you say God is your refuge, or God is your treasure, or God is your counselor, what does it matter if Jesus is not raised, is Paul's argument. Uh, there's no joy or security or meaning in any Christianity without resurrection. Sadly, many treat Christianity uh, as mere morality, uh, something to make you feel good. Uh, those are worthless goals without resurrection. Uh, The other hope that David expresses here then at the end uh, is an eternal life. Uh, Verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Uh, Because of Christ's resurrection, God makes known to you the path of life. And and David is speaking about life eternal, life ultimately here. Not not just the way through life, that was verse 7, God counsels me. Uh, But this is life, uh, pleasures forever, he says. He says this life, it's fullness of joy, it's pleasures forever. That is, it it can't be topped. There's no way to be 
more satisfied or think that there can be anything better than being in God's presence forever. Uh, Everything you could want for, uh, complete, topped-off, absolute joy and fulfillment is only with God, but it's with God forever, uh, is David's hope. Uh, So what difference does it make? What difference would it make uh, to really believe that, Uh, to keep that God at your right hand uh, every day? I know I regularly act as if these things are not true, as if full joy and pleasure are to be found in a little more food or sleep or money or health uh, or better control of things around me or whatever it might be. Uh, So follow David's, follow Jesus' example in actively acknowledging the Lord as your right hand, as your treasure, as your counselor. Uh, Now, and so grow in your joy and assurance of the life that he gives forever, and and anticipation of resurrection. How can you set the Lord continually before you this week, Uh, that Lord, the risen Lord? Uh, How can you be reminded uh, and live by the fact that in his presence is fullness of joy, in his right hand there are pleasures forever? Uh, Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this, uh, your word again this morning, uh, for the words you gave to David uh, to speak even of of Christ and his hope. I pray that we would uh, keep you, Lord, at our right hand this week uh, and every week and every day, uh, mindful of the eternal life that you've given, uh, the resurrection of Christ and uh, the resurrection life that it assures of us. Uh, Give us careful reflection on what that means uh, and how that should affect our faith in our life, our witness. And we pray all this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.